All right, good morning once again. Hey, this morning we are continuing in our Imprint 2022 series, and today I think is week number 10. Let me, yeah, week number 10. And today, as we continue studying the classical Christian spiritual disciplines, today we've gotten to, I believe, the second part of the outward expressions, the outward disciplines, uh, those that uh, bring us into interaction with others or lead us to refrain from interaction from others. It's not purely internal, it's actually involving others. And today we're talking about silence and solitude. Last week we talked about simplicity and had some good interaction about that. Uh, basically, how do we live well among all the stuff that oftentimes crowds our lives? And uh, that week is always one that gets a lot of people thinking, a lot of people evaluating some of the things they're doing or not doing. Well, this week kind of piggybacks on that in the sense that uh, the discipline of silence and simplicity or silence and solitude isn't so much about stuff, it's more about noise. The noise that we fill our lives with. The stuff that we, 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 we allow that really at root is just a distraction, keeping us from uh, sitting and uh, being with the Lord, sitting and being available to what the Lord would want to do in our lives. Uh, and so I think today will be equally as valuable because just as I needed to hear the message about, hey, stuff in my life is crowding out the work of God, man, the noise in my life likewise is crowding out the work of God in my life. So this morning I'd like to start with a story from Donald Whitney's Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Uh, it's a story in which uh, he retells, in a sense, uh, one of his favorite stories by Anton Chekhov, a Russian author, a story that Anton Chekhov wrote called The Bet. My favorite short story is The Bet by Anton Chekhov, a Russian writer of the last half of the 19th century. The plot involves a wager between two educated men regarding solitary confinement. A wealthy, middle-aged banker believed that the death penalty was a more humane penalty than solitary confinement because, quote, an executioner kills at once. Solitary confinement kills gradually. One of his guests at a party, a young lawyer of 25, disagreed, saying, to live under any conditions is better than to not live at all. Angered, the banker impulsively, impulsively responded with a bet a bet of two million rubles that the younger man could not last five years in solitary confinement. The lawyer was so convinced of his endurance that he announced that he would stay 15 years alone instead of only five. The arrangements were made and the young man moved into a separate building on the grounds of the banker's large estate. He was allowed no visitors or newspapers. He could write letters but received none. There were guards watching to make sure he never violated the agreement, but they were placed so that he could never see another human being from his windows. He received his food in silence through a small opening where he could not see those who served him. Everything else he wanted, books, certain foods, musical instruments, etc., was granted by special written request. The story develops with the description of the things the lawyer asked for throughout the years and the observations of the guards who occasionally stole a glance through a window. During the first year, the piano could be heard at almost any hour, and he asked for many books, mostly novels and other light reading. The next year, the music ceased, and the works of various classical authors were requested. 
In the sixth year of his isolation, he began to study languages, and soon he had mastered six. After the tenth year of his confinement, the prisoner sat motionless at the table and read the New Testament. After more than a year's saturation of the Bible, he began to study the history of religion and works on theology. During the last two years, his reading broadened to cover, to cover many subjects in addition to theology. The second half of the story focuses on the night before the noon deadline where the lawyer would win the bet. The banker is now at the end of his career, and his risky speculations and impetuosity had gradually undermined his business. The once self-confident millionaire was now a second-rate banker, and to pay off the wager would destroy him. Angry at his foolishness and jealous of the soon-to-be wealthy man who was now only 40 years old, the old banker determined to kill his opponent and frame the guard with the murder. Slipping into the man's room, he finds him asleep at the table and notices a letter the lawyer had written to him. He picked it up and read the following. Tomorrow at 12 o'clock I shall be free. But before leaving this room, I find it necessary to say a few words to you. With a clear conscience and before God who sees me, I declare to you that I despise freedom and life and health and all that your books call the joys of this world. For 15 years I have studied attentively the life of this world. It is true that I neither saw the earth nor its peoples, but in your books I lived. I, I sang songs, I hunted the deer and the wild boar in the forests. In your books I climbed to the summit of Elbers and Mont Blanc. I saw from those heights the sun rising in the morning, and at night it shed its purple glow over the sky and the ocean and the mountain tops. I saw beneath me the flashing lightning cut through the clouds. I saw green fields, forests, rivers, lakes, and towns. I heard the song of the sirens and the music of the shepherd's reed pipes. I felt the touch of the wings of beautiful angels who had flown to me to talk about God. Your books, they gave me wisdom. All that had been achieved by the untiring brain of man during long centuries is stored in my brain in a small compressed mass. I know I am wiser than you all, and I despise all your books. I despise all earthly blessings and wisdom. All is worthless and false, hollow and deceiving like a mirage. You may be proud, wise, and beautiful, but death will wipe you away from the face of the earth as it does the mice that live beneath your floor and your heirs, your history, your immortal geniuses. They will freeze or burn with the destruction of the earth. You have gone mad and are not following the right path. You take falsehood for truth and deformity for beauty. To prove, you, to prove to you how I despise all that you value, I renounce the two million on which I looked at one time as the opening of paradise for me, and which I now scorn. To deprive myself of the right to receive them, I will leave my prison five hours before the appointed time, and by doing so break the terms of our compact. The banker read these lines, and he replaced the paper on the table, and he kissed the strange, sleeping man, and with tears in his eyes, he quietly left the house. Chekhov writes, Never before, not even after sustaining serious losses on change, had he despised himself as he did at that moment. His tears kept him awake the rest of the night, and at seven the next morning, he was informed by the watchman that they had seen the man crawl through a window, go to the gate, and then disappear. What did you hear in that story? What do you think that story is about? Anyone want to share? 
What's that story teaching us? What's that? Yeah, and the wisdom kind of ruined him on the world, right? What'd you say? Okay, he kind of saw the worth of things differently, what was truly valuable. Anything else? It definitely affected both of the men. Well, here we are today in church once again. Here we all are fellow travelers in the Christian faith, and it's good to hear stories like that because it kind of uh, peels back some layers. It kind of makes us more sensitive then to what God would have for us as people, how we value rightly the things in our lives. Here's the thing I've noticed. Um, the, the popular expression of the Christian faith in America has much to do with noise, activity, and experience, and little to do with silence and solitude. I mean, just by a show of hands, have you been long in the Christian faith in America and been regularly or seriously encouraged to take time to be silent and take time to enter into solitude as a spiritual discipline? Not a lot of hands, right? <laughs> Kendi, <laughs> all right. But it's pretty foreign to us. We hear a lot of do more, get involved with more, uh, serve. We have great worship. We have exciting concerts. We have powerful preaching and teaching. We have engaging Bible studies, workshops, conferences, seminars, 24-hour-a-day Christian radio, books, podcasts, and music galore. Therefore, thus, what qualifies as a healthy Christian today is one who is regularly involved. Regularly involved in church, one who attends events, serves in ministry, goes on mission trips, and bears visible outward signs of commitment and devotion. That's the stuff we look at, right? In fact, spiritual maturity is most often assessed based on external behavior. Basically, whether or not you're a strong Christian or a, uh, someone who's practicing your faith is mostly gauged on the frequency and duration of church activity and church involvement. I was listening to an interview with Tim Keller this week, and he was talking about how the problem a lot of times in the rise and fall of these church leaders is that the churches look to their leaders and they're gauging their uh, spiritual maturity and effectiveness based on their giftedness and not on their fruitfulness. Basically, they're looking at the exercise of their gifts, what they can offer in the context of the church, and they're not actually looking at the deeper, quieter places in their life and say, are they bearing fruit? Are they dwelling in the Word? Are they walking with Jesus? Rarely do we look for maturity based on real spiritual fruit. Rarely do we look for maturity based on the content of character or the faithful practices of spiritual disciplines. Thus, we often end up with a faith that is shaped more by external expression or uh, taken captive, hijacked by popular culture, politics, and nationalism than by the transforming inner work of the Holy Spirit through the intentional, ongoing practices of the Christian spiritual disciplines. A person can gain influence. They can climb the ranks of church leadership and know very little of prayer. They can become a leader in the church, in the Christian community, and know little of prayer, of scripture, of fasting, simplicity, silence, and solitude. They can't model it because they don't know it at all. Worse yet, we can even become suspicious of certain spiritual disciplines, being led to believe 
being led to view the intentional practice of things like silence and solitude as being a little bit weird, a little bit dangerous, a little esoteric, mystical, strange, and maybe a bit too Catholic or something, right? We just don't know. We're kind of like, ah, it sounds good, but you got to be careful. You never know where you'll end up if you spend time in silence and solitude. You need someone else to hold your hand. You need someone else to download stuff, feed you like a spiritual baby bird. We're a little weirded out by the idea of silence and solitude because you never know what might happen. But here's the thing. We should probably notice something. We should notice that Jesus himself demonstrated a very different practice of his life with the Father, uh, with Creator God. In spite of our don't-just-sit-there-do-something mentality in church, Jesus often modeled a don't-just-do-something, sit-there <laughs> model in the life with God. There were times, I think of a time where the people were like, hey, there's so many people here, they want to see you, all these people need to be healed, and blah, 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 and he's like, hey, I want to go to a different town. There's other places I need to go, and he left them. There were so many needs, so much to do, and he's like, no, I think I need that walk. I need the walk from here to there to sort through, to think, to center. Jesus invites us to do the same. Jesus invites us to do the same if we are to experience real transformation, if we too are to discover the increasing fullness of the life with God. What Jesus is beckoning us toward is what has been called the hidden life. The hidden life with God. That which I may never see in you. I may never see it, it obviously, or, or outlined in you, but it's there. Those are the quiet life with God. Those times of quiet communion with our Maker. The quiet, hidden life with God. We must cultivate an appetite for silence and solitude if we are to truly push back the noise and to know God and to grow deeper in our life with Him. Does this sound interesting to anybody else? I mean, I crave this. I desire this. And I hope that this is something fruitful for us. Now, what is solitude? Our portable, simple explanation, definition of solitude, silence and solitude. Entering times of stillness and silence to be renewed and restored. Entering into times of silence and st stillness and silence to be renewed and restored by God so we may be fully present. So we may be fully present in relationship with others in meaningful, redemptive ways. I'll read that again. Entering times of stillness and silence to be renewed and restored by God so we may be fully present in relationship with others in meaningful and redemptive ways. You see the flow there? We're intentional about those quiet hours with God so that when I'm with you... I'm able to be present. I'm able to be less distracted because I'm coming from a place of rest and of quiet, of centeredness. So there's a flow here, an outward uh, outworking of it. Donald Whitney explains silence and solitude this way. He says, Think of silence and solitude as complementary disciplines to fellowship. Without silence and solitude, we're shallow. Without fellowship, we're stagnant. Balance requires them all. So, time away, time spent in silence and solitude, it changes us. It changes us. It, it reorders our priorities and our values. It heightens our senses and our perspective. It centers and it directs us intensively toward Jesus. And God seems to do His greatest works in silence and solitude. Have you noticed? 
mean, times when we, we think there should be fireworks across the sky and big explosions and like a, you know, action thriller, but it's not. Jesus is like very subdued. I mean, God's work is very subtle. Easily missed sometimes. Think about the silence of the stillness of creation. Think about the making of Adam and Eve. The call of Moses. The solitude of Elijah. Think about the simplicity and the aloneness that surrounded Jesus' birth. About Jesus, that surrounded Jesus' resurrection. I want to look specifically at a passage from 1 Kings chapter 19 uh, in verses 1 through 18. But 1 Kings 1, uh, chapter 19, this is a, after Mount Carmel, the showdown on Mount Carmel, God's prophet Elijah, he flees. He runs for his life, and where does he run? He runs to Mount Horeb. Let's, uh, let's pick it up in 19.1, 1 Kings 19.1. When Ahab got home, this is after the showdown on Mount Carmel, right? He told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the God strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid, and he fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he laid down and slept under the broom tree. But, he, but as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more. Why? For the journey ahead will be too much for you. The journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I'm glad you asked. I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord told him, Go out and stand before me on the mountain. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And the, after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of God have broken down their they've broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars, they've killed every one of your prophets, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Then the Lord told him, Go back the way you came, and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. So, a little backstory here. 
This is Elijah. This is the guy who is, who's been called by God to bring a testimony of God's uh, righteous requirements and his testimony of faithfulness to Israel, who's breaking their covenant, and he's seen God do amazing things, undeniable acts of power and awe. Yet something's happened here. After three long years, Elijah's faith had been shaped. It had been forged in the solitude of the brook Kareth. When he sits there and he's fed by the ravens. As Israel suffered through drought because of their unfaithfulness. His ministry was punctuated by very, very visible acts of power uh, in Ahab's throne room. Uh, on uh, the fireballs on Mount Carmel that outrunning a racing chariot. But like us, Elijah, as James says, Elijah was a human being just like you and me. Elijah was vulnerable. He was vulnerable to fear, to overextension, exhaustion, noise, weariness, activity, and he finally had reached the breaking point. So that when his life was threatened by Queen Jezebel, he ran. He had no defense. He was like, oh, oh no. I'm doomed. And he runs. He runs. He ran for his life. He retreated. Where am I going to run? Where am I going to go? Stay here, servant. I'm just going to go die in the desert. Where can I go? Where can I go to find God? And he runs. He runs to the last place that he knows that God might just be found. Have you been in this place? Where it's like, I don't know anything anymore. I just know I'm, I'm spent. I'm scared. I'm worn out. Where can I go and meet with God? And sometimes we just have to go back to that last place we knew he was. The last place we knew he could be found. Elijah, and over, he's overwhelmed and he's afraid, so he runs away to God's mountain. He runs to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. My, why would he have run to Mount Sinai? Why would he have maybe thought that at least I could probably find God at Mount Sinai? What's that? That's where Moses had gone. That's where Moses had received the Ten Commandments. That's where he had a direct prolonged encounter with God. So it's like, at least I might be able to find God there. And so most theologians and historians believe that he runs there, climbs the mountain, hides in the very same cave, the same cleft in which Moses had lived or stayed during that time with God. So he goes and he hides in this cave. Now along the way, God provided sustenance for the journey when Elijah was overwhelmed. Why? And the angel says it. Because the journey is too much for you. I don't think there, I mean, that's one of the most insightful sentences in the Bible. The angel touching him saying, wake up, eat and drink, because this journey is too much for you. This journey has always been too much for you. It will be too much for you. You need the sustenance that only God can provide. So take and eat, drink. God was drawing Elijah, even though he didn't know it. He thought he was the one running. But God was drawing Elijah into a place of silence and solitude so that he could escape the demands and the drama and the burden of life and ministry and hear him speak, hear him speak, and in doing so, give Elijah assurance, perspective, and direction. I mean, there's some crazy stuff that happens on that mountainside, right? Why do you think they, <laughs> there's the firestorm and the earthquake and the windstorm? Maybe that's what Elijah had come to expect. This is the only way God can really show up, is in the noise, in the, in the wow. So God's like, how about a firestorm? How about an earthquake? How about a windstorm? 
I'm in none of those. But listen closely. Listen closely. And in that gentle whisper, he speaks. When we enter God's recreating silence, we find ourselves invited to participate. We, we find ourselves invited to participate in God's great ongoing redemptive work in creation. We get to join with him in how he's making all things new. He's restoring and remaking. We carry with us, we carry with us a little temple or a sanctuary where we are invited to meet with God anytime, anywhere. In the Jewish tradition, you'll oftentimes see a man praying and they'll have a shawl over their head called a talit, a prayer shawl. And when Jesus in Matthew uh, 6, 5 through 6 says, when you, giving his instructions on prayer, says, when you pray, go into your room, go into your private space, your prayer closet, or if you will. Most people would hear this as like, put up your hood. Put up your prayer shawl. Because anytime you put up the prayer shawl, you were in the sanctuary. It was like a moving tabernacle. You had opportunity to meet with God inside that prayer space, inside uh, that little temple that you carried with you. Why is this important? Why was, must we also not necessarily have a scarf with us or a talit, but why must we have that sense that anywhere I am, I have a little temple into which I can retreat. I can go and sit and commune with God. Without a place to regularly and intentionally meet with God and give Him our full attention, we are left trying to find meaning, purpose, and direction in the midst of all that noise and activity and all those people that crowd our life. Uh, when I was in the Air Force, I had the opportunity to go to combat survival school at Fairchild Air Force Base in, uh, near Spokane, Washington. And one phase of that training was... Uh, was a, a prisoner of war camp. It was teaching us how to resist interrogation, resist uh, all the difficulties that a prisoner of war might experience. And they kept us in little cells. They wouldn't let us touch the walls. We couldn't lay down. We couldn't do anything. But one element that they incorporated into, our, into the bunker where we were housed was noise, day and night loud rock and roll music and not the good parts of the songs either like the first verse the beginning of the course and then it started over you never got to hear the chorus. the worst babies crying recordings of babies crying for hours so you couldn't sleep they were wearing us down they were they were disorienting us simply with noise that was their strategy to break us down and make us more pliable to the work of the enemy was to distract us and prevent us from resting and they did it with noise, noise, noise. In life, the constant noise and the busyness, likewise, it disorients us and it wears us down, it desensitizes. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. But it's not just Jack, it's all of us. All work and no play makes all of us Dull. It's true. Maybe you found this to be true as well. So, all the noise is a big problem. But to make matters worse, we can actually end up fearing and thus avoiding silence and solitude. Why? Because we know it's the place where God is waiting for us. Maybe this hits a little more closely to home. It's like, I am afraid of what I might find if I were to 
push away all this insulation, all this noise that I surround myself to keep my to surround myself with to keep me from having to deal with it. We're we're afraid. We avoid it because we know that's where God might be waiting for us because we're afraid of what he might say, what we might discover, and because it feels so unfamiliar to be in that space. Some of us have been on the run for a very long time. We're doing all the Christian stuff. We're doing all the church activity, but we're doing it to keep us from having to actually deal with God. We stay busy in order to avoid encountering God in any meaningful ways, but that is no way to live. That's no way to live, especially in the life with Christ. I mean, honestly, you must ask, what is it you've been missing out on? By never showing up in the room with God, never sitting quietly with the Holy Spirit, never tuning an ear or tuning your heart to what God is actually saying to you, seeking out the firestorms, seeking out the earthquakes and the windstorms, and avoiding running from the, the gentle whisper. How long can you go on in your own strength? What are you willing to, uh, what are you willing to go on doing without? When did you begin to believe that the journey wasn't too much for you? When did you start to believe that God called you to something that you could just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make it happen under your own strength and your giftedness? Man, we're missing out. We've got to be careful when we start to believe the journey isn't too much for us as well. So I want to give you three, three ideas here. Three ideas on how to develop a habit uh, and cultivate an appetite for silence and solitude, okay? I know the list, list makers in the room have been loving this series because I'm doing this a lot, but here's three. This isn't ten from last week, but just three. How do we develop the habit and cultivate the appetite for silence and solitude? Well, the first thing I'd say is carve out quiet hours. Carve out quiet hours. The second is seize sanctuary moments so it's create carve out quiet hours seize sanctuary moments and the third is plan some wilderness time plan some wilderness time what do I mean by these three things well first what are quiet hours quiet hours are in an intentional time each day to give God our full attention to spend time in prayer and listening scripture study and meditation this is when we show up we sit, we attend. Think of this as your centering time, your centering time uh, in which you're asking the Holy Spirit to recalibrate, reorient you. In our quiet hours with God, we listen, we grow, we learn to trust. These quiet hours, they must become a priority in your life. Uh, uh, must become a priority in our lives for our spiritual well-being. Quiet hours must become a shaping influence in your days, weeks, months, and years. Now, here's a pro tip. No one argues with a calendar. You look silly if you're arguing with a calendar, right? No one argues with a calendar. So make these quiet hours an appointment. You're not lying if someone asks you to do something and you say, I can't, I've got an appointment. That appointment is to sit quietly with God, to open His Word and to make yourself available. If we don't legitimize quiet hours in our daily schedule, it won't happen. Many of you have been down this road. You have good intentions, but it never actually happens. Well, give it priority. Put it on your calendar. We do well to listen to C.S. Lewis here. 
Lewis says, it comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day, they rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back, in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in, and so on all day. Standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings, coming out, coming in, out of the wind. Coming in, out of the wind. I love that idea. Our quiet hours are us coming out, coming in, out of the wind of our world. Finding the cleft in the rock where we sit quietly with the Lord and we hear His still, small voice. The more faithful, are, the more faithful we are in keeping quiet hours with God, the more prepared we are to enter and enjoy the sanctuary moments that will arise. So, carve out quiet hours. Second, seize sanctuary moments. What are sanctuary moments? These are the unexpected opportunities in our day during which we consciously choose to retreat into silence and solitude with God. Now, be warned. Sanctuary moments often come during times that could otherwise be frustrating. When I said unexpected, the things you're going to not choose to be in, but find yourself in. Uh, traffic jams, standing in line, being on hold, menial tasks you have to do. What shifts in our thinking when we see standing in line at the post office as invitation? An invitation to, in that place, go to our prayer closet, turn our attention to God, and rest in His presence. How does that transform that moment? Instead of being frustrated, instead of being uh, angry, it says like, oh good, I have some time here. I could turn my attention to God. I could really seize this moment and make it a sanctuary moment. Here's the thing, sanctuary moments are happening around us all the time. Ours is to attend. I'd love to hear stories about what you run into this week. It's like, oh, there was an accident on I-44. I was stuck for an hour. And I had an hour of nothing to do. And for you young moms, I mean, you're like, oh, man, that sounds wonderful. You know, or, you know, being in the bathroom. You know, the bathroom can become this, like, <laughs> sanctuary. It's like, there's no kids here. Praise the Lamb. Well, seize that as a sanctuary moment. Okay, so uh, carve out quiet hours. Seize sanctuary moments. And then third, plan some wilderness time. What do I mean by wilderness time? Wilderness time is, is scheduled, purposeful time away. It is a retreat scheduled away from home and from your routine to spend intentional expended, extended time with God, to listen, to rest, and simply enjoy His presence. I used to go and I used to take some, I think some of you have been here, uh, been there with me, but Assumption Abbey in Ava was a, a Trappist monastery. They had a guest house. You could go and it was glorious. It was simple. It was no Wi-Fi, no cell signal. You had to drive like two miles and stand on your tiptoes on top of a hill to maybe catch the signal. It was great, but I'd take guys there uh, and girls and just for two days, nothing except to do with the Lord. And it was uncomfortable. It was restful. It was all kinds of things. It was kind of a strange collision of things, actually. But Assumption Abbey's closed uh, right now. So. But wilderness time, it is an intensive opportunity to examine our lives and in doing so gain godly perspective. An on-purpose time 
to rest and to be restored, to be healed, to wrestle with God, to pray, to intercede, to fast, to learn self-control, to be centered, to confess, to repent. All of these things happen naturally in wilderness time. Ultimately, to be like Jesus, we must enter regularly into wilderness time. Well, what did Jesus do? What does Jesus model for us here? Well, look at Luke 5. Look first at Luke chapter 5, uh, verses 12 through 16. I am on the wrong page here, folks. Or maybe I'm not in the wrong... <laughs> Hold on a second. Luke 5... Oh, I'm in the wrong book, sorry. <laughs> Rookie mistake. Okay, Luke, Luke 6, 12 through 15. No, that's not right either, is it? 5, 12 through 16. I'm doing well today. You're welcome. In one of the villages, Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. When the man saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Lord, he said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Then Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what had happened. And he said, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But, despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster, and vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. But, Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. Jesus often withdrew. So many people to be healed. So many people he could preach to, and he said, Nope, I must get away. I must go, and I must pray. Uh, look at Mark 6. Here we go. Mark 6 30 through 32. The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. Then Jesus said, Let's go. Let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. I love it that Jesus modeled this and he valued this and he wanted his disciples to know this rhythm too. It's like, man, there's always going to be need. There's always going to be people coming and going that you can do good stuff for, even in my name. But for now, what we must do is get away, step away, rest and pray. Here's the thing. You may be a pretty impressive Christian. True story. You may be a pretty impressive Christian, but I doubt you have surpassed Jesus. I doubt you've reached, legitimately reached a place where you're like, that's great, Jesus. Good for you. I've got this, though. I doubt you have surpassed Jesus. If Jesus needed time away, you probably do too. Just saying, okay? You would do well to step away every once in a while to rest and to pray. So let's do a self-assessment. Let's finish up with this. Honestly ask, how am I doing? How are you doing? If you gave yourself an A to, uh, an a to F grade on the spiritual disciplines of silence and solitude as well as the other spiritual disciplines, what would your spiritual GPA look like right now? How would you assess uh, your familiarity, your experience with specifically silence and solitude but also the other disciplines? 
Are you tired? Are you tired? Are you feeling somehow hollowed out inside? That's what I notice sometimes. I just feel like I am empty. Something in the middle here has gone and it's weary. It's, it's, it's worn out. I'm hollowed out inside. Do you find yourself just going through the motions? Are you just trying to look busy? Are you just trying to look busy? Are you feeling overextended? Has a sense of weariness, a deep, down-in-your-bones weariness, has that somehow sadly become normal? Normal for you? Do you feel thin? Do you feel sort of stretched? Like butter scraped over too much bread? Is is frustration brewing? Is frustration brewing? Are you afraid? Are you on the run? Are you in a, a crisis of faith? Well, what is God inviting you into today? What does solitude hold for you today? Imagine that. What might happen if you stepped away and laid this all before God in silence and solitude? What might happen? What if we actually, what we need actually the most is only to be found in silence and solitude with God? What if the answer is to be found nowhere else, but in that place you're most nervous about going or most unfamiliar with? Silence and solitude with God. Just as Jesus was intentional about time away, just as He was intentional about being present with the Father, we too must prioritize these things. We must prioritize solitude. We must become familiar with silence and stillness. If we are to be like Jesus, if we are to bear fruit in our life and ministry, we must be restored in the quiet. We must become more attentive to God's living Word. So, be courageous. Be courageous as you depart the familiar chaos and noise. Be courageous as you enter into the peace of God, even if it feels unfamiliar, even if it feels intimidating. In that solitude, may you find your Maker. May you find your Maker and may you hear Him speak the words your soul needs most to hear today. Be still and know that He is God. He is your creator and your sustainer. In Christ you were made, and in him you are held together. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, sustain us. For the first or for the hundredth time, here is a quiet place. Here is a quiet moment. My friends, Jesus is waiting for us. He is willing to sit with us and to speak to you today. So enter in. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Oh, yes, thank you for Jesus. That he didn't come just teaching, but he came actually demonstrating, showing, leading, inviting us to come in. Lord, we're so out of sorts. We're so lopsided sometimes. We're so unfamiliar with the actual presence of the living God in our lives. We don't sit well. We don't quiet ourselves well. We find this, like, sickening comfort in the chaos and the noise. We don't know what to do if we just put our arms to our side and just said, God, speak. Lord, I pray today, just like Elijah, we'd make a, an assessment of how we're feeling, how we're just worn out. We've been on the run. And God, may we find ourselves in your presence. May we find yourself in the quiet. 
and may we hear you speak. And from that quiet place, that solitude, may we find new direction. May we be reinvigorated, but then sent out to rightly engage your work in the world. Lord, we'll all be better off if we look to Jesus and we start living like Him, that we're all able to show up, be present in each other's lives with, a f with our w being, being restored and refreshed with cups that are overflowing, having been in Your presence. And I'm afraid that so many of us here don't know what that even feels like because our whole Christian experience, our whole experience in the church has just been frenetic and busy. And we don't know how to balance that with quiet. So God, I pray today that we would uh, carve out those quiet hours, that we would seize those sanctuary moments, and that we would actually make time to get into the wilderness, for that wilderness time, because these are the places where you do some of your best work. Yeah, sometimes it's a crucible. Sometimes it's a refining experience, and it's not always comfortable. Sometimes it's sweet communion. And sometimes, God, it's just sleep. Your Word tells us that you give sleep, you give rest to those you love. So God, may we slow down enough. May we step, a, step apart, back away, so that we can be just with you, so that our souls might be fed and restored, we ask. God, may we look to Jesus as our Creator and our Sustainer, the One who made us but also holds all things together for us. God, you love us. And the practical effect of that is that you want to lead us into health, into wholeness, and into new life. And so I pray that you would help us not be afraid of the stillness, the silence, and the solitude we ask. going to share communion this morning and you know the drill as far as that goes um, sit with the Lord introspect listen closely lay your whole life before him seek search me and know me God where am I anxious where am I rebellious where am I stiff-necked and hard-hearted God do a work in me And then, if you've, you're a follower of Jesus, um, you're welcome to partake with us. So whenever you're ready, after this unhurried time of introspection and sitting with the Lord, I'll ask you to come down the center aisle, receive the bread and the cup, go back to your seats down the side aisles. Once everyone's served, we'll partake together. But here's an important, um, rich moment for you. So whenever you're ready, come and be served.